Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 51, Revelation, I Have the Keys of Death and Hades. And in this episode, we are going to conclude Revelation chapter 1 by looking at the words that the one like a son of man speaks for the very first time. We've looked in past episodes at some of the things that John sees when he looks at the Son of Man and some things that he hears, and yet this is the first time that Jesus himself addresses John, and it's very, very telling the kinds of things that he says to him. And so we're going to dive into these last handful of verses, see some new things that will help us make the most sense of what we're about to read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and then we'll round out what I think the value of this teaching is for the church. So let's jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me simply to read the final paragraph of Revelation chapter 1, which is verses 17 through 20. And here's what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Now, just to begin this week's episode, I I want us to focus in for just a minute on the very first two words that the Son of Man speaks when, uh, when he reaches out and touches John, encourages him in his clearly frightened state, and utters the two words to him, fear not. Now, probably, and this could be arguable, I have not counted these references, but I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that there are probably few commands given in Scripture more often than from God to His people of the words, fear not. Um, These words appear all of the time. In fact, oftentimes even from angelic visitors, when people see them, they're terrified. They don't know what is going on. This is something very foreign to them. It's outside of their normal range of experience and typically when we are confronted with something that is strange to us or different than our normal everyday experience fear instantly grips our hearts and it's really been this way since the very beginning and you might remember all the way back to genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve take of the forbidden fruit the from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they realize that they are naked now and they don't like that realization, that's something new to them, Um, they run and they cover themselves up and they hide. And then Adam says to the Lord God when he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, where are you? And he says, I was naked. I was, uh, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And, you know, from the very beginning, the tendency for human beings when confronted with something that is foreign to them, or that they do not understand, or that they do not like, it's to scare them. And so these words, fear not, are super, super important and they're powerful. And of course, Jesus himself is the one speaking these words and he recognizes the the meaning of why these words are important. I mean, here's John, he sees this son of man and he falls at his feet as though dead. I mean, John is is stunned. He can't move. This again is similar to some other visions that 
Isaiah and then Ezekiel have in various portions of their prophetic times throughout the Old Testament. But I, I do, um, I, I looked back this past week, actually just this morning, into the one of the Instagram posts that I made toward the beginning of the Revelation series where I asked people to write in and comment on what comes to their minds when they think about the book of Revelation. And I was drawn into a, a handful of the statements again, and I'll just repeat them. One, one person had said, well, it's something to dread in the future. That's what the book of Revelation is. And somebody also wrote terrifying weird stuff. And, and I love these answers. They're very honest and they're very true and they reflect quite a bit of thinking regarding the book of Revelation. But I'd like to, to grab those two statements there, the, the something to dread in the future and the terrifying weird stuff, and bring that right into this episode and say, fascinating, isn't it? That in a book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, a revealing of Jesus for the benefit of the churches, for the benefit of the world, the first two words that this Jesus speaks when he is revealed are fear not. Now, something to dread in the future, terrifying weird stuff, you know, dread, terrifying. These are fearful words. These are words of we don't know what's coming. We don't know what this is going to look like. I sure hope I'm not around when this happens. And fear is a very, very real part of human nature. It wasn't intended to be part of human nature, but in a fallen state, fear is real. It's Wednesday, and I live in North Carolina on the East Coast, actually not just in the state, but on the east side of the state, and we just have been recently threatened with a hurricane warning from Hurricane Dorian. And if you want to observe fear in action in the lives of many, many people, move to North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia or Florida during hurricane season and watch what people legitimately do at the threat of a hurricane. This is real. And you don't have any other opportunity to be face-to-face -face with your fears until you are put in a situation where something that is surrounding you or something that is confronting you or something that is threatening to you is actually in your path. And when that happens, to hear the words fear not really does place us right before us a choice. We can either present our fears and or our anxieties to God and say, in this moment, I am going to trust you, trust you, the one who tells me not to be afraid, or I am going to act on my fears and I am going to do a handful of things. And what I have observed over the years, um, and, and this is just because of the way scripture talks about this too, but you know, the, the Israelites as a whole never ever made it into the promised land. The first generation of Israelites after being ransomed from Egypt did not make it into the promised land because of fear. They were afraid to enter a place that God said he was going to grant them, but they were afraid to go in because of the giants who were in their land and didn't feel like they could conquer them. And then when Israel first requests a king, they request Saul, and Saul has the opportunity to become Israel's king forever and to be the one on, um, with a line that will endure through all time. And yet Saul's issue of you know faith between him and God was to wait in a battle long enough for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifice. Saul gets impatient based upon fear, offers the sacrifice himself, and loses the kingdom. 
And all through the Old Testament, people who are caught into fear or who are wrapped up in a culture of fear oftentimes turn themselves into a culture of complaint. And this was Israel's curse, more or less, all through the Old Testament, complaining that God would not provide for them, complaining that God would not um, keep them safe or protect them. And it's ultimately rooted in fear. And fear faces all of us. I mean, fear is real. Um, In religious settings, oftentimes, fear is a ruling. Um, People are fearful. And I I have witnessed and have even been part of this myself where sometimes I will pray out of fear. I will pray for God's protection or for him to watch over our children and not let bad things happen to them or look at the society in which we live and begin to get fearful about the direction that society as a whole is headed. And yet in the Bible, God always calls his people to closeness with him, to rest in him by faith, not by fear, and to offer up prayers to him that are rooted in faith, not in fear. And so Jesus' words to John here of fear not are powerful, necessary, important, crucial words for the church today to grasp onto because the idea is that every one of us is fearful. There are things in our lives that we don't know what is coming and we respond to them in a handful of different ways. Some people just grab a hold of of life by the horns and they just control their situations. They're controlling people. They control the way conversations go. They control the kinds of situations they find themselves in and don't find themselves in. And they get very, very uneasy when they lose control. Well, those are fear-based issues. Those who try to manipulate situations to get what they want, that is their attempt at control. And that is also rooted in fear that my needs will not be met if I do not take care of them myself. Fear also leads people to be incredibly aggressive Um, you you can be a fight or a flight type of person when you are afraid. Some people power up and come out swinging. They're aggressive with their language. They're very bold and brash in the way that they talk to others. Sometimes people simply turn and run away. They run away from conflict. They avoid contentious people because they are genuinely afraid of what will happen if they confront people like that or, or get into a conversation where someone yells at them or or says something to them that they don't like. Fear is all over the place and it is very, very present in the life of religious people. And so for John again, for Jesus rather, to address to John the words fear not hit us right where we live because to be faithful witnesses to Jesus is rooted in our faith in him. And our faith in Jesus must be in contrast to any type of fear that would necessarily shut us down from the kind of faithful witness he's calling us to. And so for Jesus to be a faithful ruler and a faithful king and a faithful savior in this kingdom, he simply wants to have the opportunity to address us in our fears. And many Christians I find are unwilling to look at their own fears and address what's going on under the surface. What am I really afraid of? What am I holding on to right now that I'm afraid of losing? And I guess we could probably jump straight to the end of the matter and and discuss that that what typically drives fear is the idea that the life I now have is in some way going to be threatened by someone, by something, by some storm, 
by some policy change, by some argument, by some fallout between friends, whatever it happens to be, there is something about my life, what I know as that which gives me life, that is being threatened. And of course, in the book of Hebrews, it were even told that the enemy himself, through fear of death, has kept people in lifelong slavery. And so whether this is literal death or whether this is metaphorical death, it doesn't really matter. People are afraid of losing the things they believe bring them life. And so what Jesus wants to address for us is the simple fact that, listen, fear not. And he says it to John, but he could just as easily say it to us. Here are Jesus's words. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And we're going to get into just what that specific thing, those specific things mean in just a second, but let me say one more thing about fear. Many of us live in what we like to call our comfort zones. These are places in our lives, conversations we get into, things we are willing to do, things we are not willing to do, that we personally feel comfortable with. Jesus is calling every person to follow him into his kingdom and to go from your comfort zone into Jesus's kingdom zone is going to require you and require me to walk through our fears because we can walk by faith and we can act we can act in faith or we can act in fear but we cannot do both and the real way to know whether or not our faith really is in the one who has conquered death is in the face of our fears will we act in faith will we faithfully witness to Jesus in the face of something that is threatening the life we know the life we love and Jesus himself numerous times in the gospels will even talk about taking up your cross denying yourself and following him quite literally giving up your life giving up the things you are holding on to that you believe give you life and Jesus is saying I will offer you my life instead but we will have to face the fears that we see in our own hearts and they look different for every person. So it isn't enough to say, well, I wish I was like that guy or that girl who, you know, they can so boldly talk about Jesus to somebody who doesn't know him or they can so boldly stand under critique and they don't, they don't crumble. Yeah, well, for them, fear looks different. It has different areas. And for them, they'll have to walk over their fear zones in different ways than you will. The bottom line is that for Jesus himself to say the words, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Jesus, again, is reminding us that he is the God of the Old Testament who is always defined as the living one. And this is the God who always offers his encouragement to fearful people that he is the living one. And yet I want you to listen to Jesus's next words. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, these are not a, any type of words that you and I should ever expect to hear on the lips of the same person in the same breath. I died, and behold, I am alive. 
But this is the heart of everything the kingdom of God centers on. This is the heart of the gospel itself. Jesus has in fact come, has absorbed and taken into himself all of the curse of the earth, all of the disruption, all of the chaos, all of the harm, all of the sin onto himself. He allowed evil to do its worst to him, allowed evil to crush him, allowed evil and sin and wickedness and death to kill him. And Jesus has come back victorious with new life on the other side of death. And so the one who is speaking the words to you and to me, fear not, is in fact one who knows what it is like to face the loss of everything in this world, to face the threat of everything he holds on to in this world, to face the threats of everything that death, sin, and the evil one can throw his way. Jesus has faced it. Jesus has endured it. Jesus has absorbed it. And Jesus has come back to life after it. This is the one who is encouraging John and is encouraging us to fear not because I have faced off with death. I have faced off with any human being's worst conceivable fear. I have faced it. I have endured it. And it did not keep me dead. I have come back to life. And now I possess the keys of both death and Hades. At the end of verse 18 is also the title of this podcast episode, and it is where Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is his concluding reason why John, and therefore us, need not fear anything, because death itself, that which can rob us of life, and Hades, the place where the dead go, have both been conquered by Jesus. And Jesus uses this strange phrase, I have the keys of death in Hades. And this is not the first time that Jesus has referenced the keys. And probably the clearest example of the keys is found in Matthew 16. If you're familiar with this passage, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they tell him a handful of answers. Some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're Elijah. Some think that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, okay, that's all good and fine. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells Peter that the father has revealed this to him. This is the only way that he would have known this otherwise. And then he says this to him in verse 18 of Matthew 16. I tell you, you are Peter And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus offers to give Peter something about the keys of the kingdom. Now we know what keys do, right? Keys simply unlock doors. And he has just spoken to Peter about the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And gates, again, are large barred doors. We've talked about the gates. Um, I used an image a a while back when talking about forgiveness, that gates and and prison cells is oftentimes an image that's used. And I think that's a consistent image 
But the idea of keys is whoever possesses the keys to unlock the doors is the one who has the power. And he is offering, Jesus is offering to Peter and therefore the church the keys of the kingdom. Well, that sounds a little different than the keys of death and Hades. And yet I just want you to track with me for just a second. The fact that we are dealing with the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, it also isn't the first time that we have dealt with. And as Jesus connects for Matthew, I'm sorry, for Peter in Matthew 16, he connects the keys with forgiveness of sins and unforgiveness. And if you back up a few chapters in Matthew to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of, of the enemy versus the kingdom of God. And he says, how can you enter How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And the the verb there for bind, bind the strong man, tie him up, is the same type of verb used in Matthew 16 to describe the forgiveness of sins or the unforgiveness of someone's sins. Which is why two chapters later then in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus tells a parable of an unforgiving servant, and we looked at this, I, I put this sermon as, as one episode previously in the podcast, The Freedom of Forgiveness, but it says, out of pity for the man, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And so releasing someone is loosing them, binding someone is not forgiving them, and Jesus is referring to the keys of the kingdom are the very things that allow you to do both. Either lock the door, bind someone, or unlock the door, loose them, release them, set them free. And so in John chapter 20, it says to Jesus, says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so Jesus is here dealing with the forgiveness of sins, the empowering presence of his keys to be able to set the captives free. Those who are imprisoned by the enemy, what, who Jesus refers to in Matthew 12 as the strong man, someone who has bound sinful people in his grip, and those same people need to be set free. One of the tools of the enemy to bind people in his grip is through fear. Hebrews 2 talks about through fear of death, Satan has kept people in lifelong slavery. People will do what someone in authority over them tells them to do if the person in authority has the power to threaten to remove something from their life if they do not comply. This is how the kingdoms of the world work. They work primarily with a power over mentality. The kingdoms of this world advance through threatening um, violence or oppression of some kind to those who do not listen to what they are saying. Those who do not follow them and obey exactly what they say. The power over mentality is one that simply says, you will do what I say or else. That's a power over mentality kingdom and the fact that Jesus has been is giving Peter the keys of the kingdom and we talk about the kingdom as Daniel chapter 2 alluded to for us this is a kingdom that will never end Daniel chapter 7 talks about the same thing an eternal kingdom one that will never end and this this son of man will be seated on a throne forever and ever 
Well, the fact is, it's surprising to hear about a kingdom that will never end. And the way, we, the way that's surprising to us is because every kingdom ends, every person eventually dies, death itself is this thing that has been sweeping through history ever since the beginning that will, in fact, put an end to everything. It will put an end to your life. It will put an end to mine. It will put an end to this kingdom. It will put an end to that kingdom. And for Jesus to offer to have a kingdom that will never end, it actually means, quite literally, he has to do something with death. And so when Jesus says that I have the keys of death and Hades, what he means is the way my kingdom is eternal, the way my kingdom will never end, and the way that I have able to come and to set the captives free is because I will take on death myself for you. And when I defeat death, there is no area in this world that I am not able to go and to conquer. Jesus, in fact, has come in and said, I'm able to deal with it all. And by being able to deal with it all, there is no longer anything you have to fear because I have already defeated every single thing that could even remotely make you afraid. And so Jesus is able to extend out to his people the keys of the kingdom, as he calls them. And this quite literally is what the church is empowered to do. The church is equipped through the power of the Holy Spirit to be Jesus's light bearers and, and witnesses to the world of the freedom that can be people's if they will allow Jesus, who has already dealt with death, if they will allow Jesus' entrance into their own lives, into their own souls, into their own hearts, to set them free from the fears that are controlling their lives, that are ruining their lives, that are keeping them in bondage, that are keeping them in the dark, that are keeping them fearful and necessarily dependent upon anyone and everyone who threatens them with their whatever kingdom of this world type of threats, whatever it happens to be. And Jesus has said he has come to set the captives free. And this is why he's able to say as he continues, he's telling John, write therefore the things that you have seen. Things that are and those that are to take place after this. We've talked about this before. Jesus is here saying, I have come. I have done these things. I am present with you now, John. I want you to relay this message to the world. And I want you to start with my people. I want you to start with those who have willingly let me in so that I can thoroughly deal with the fears that are present in their lives and thoroughly set them up to be my faithful witnesses. And then in verse 20, he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we have looked at length already at the lampstands being the churches. And if you don't remember that, you could go back to episode 48 and, and re-familiarize yourself with the importance of what is happening there. But if we backed up to the paragraph just before the one we were looking at here, we back up to verse 16. We read that in his right hand, he held seven stars. And this is Jesus 
referring or what John sees is that he has these stars in his hand. And yet in verse 17, it says that he laid his right hand on John. So again, don't, don't get too confused with apocalyptic language. It's not as if there are seven stars and a closed fist and then Jesus is reaching out with his fist and sort of fist pumping John. It, it's not like that. It, it's saying he has these stars in his hand and it is with that hand, the hand that holds these stars, that he's reaching out and offering comfort to John. And there's a lot of discussion about this, at least in some of the commentaries I looked at regarding what, what are the, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, and what really does that actually mean? Is this speaking to the pastor of each of the churches? You know, the word angel or angelos just means messenger. Um, is this referring to the person who would have carried the letter from Patmos to the to the churches and, and walked it around and delivered it to these various churches? Um, the way Revelation is set up, even all the way back to the very beginning of the book where we're told that Jesus sends his angel to his servant John uh, to bear witness to, to the things that are true, angels are always messengers. Um, when the Lord God himself wants to do something on the earth, he sends a messenger, he sends a representative of himself. Uh, messengers, angels, they're just divine beings. There are some who are in his presence all the time and simply manifest his will on the earth to those that they need to, to be speaking to. And so if, if Jesus has an angel that is there to give a direct message to John, and the book of Hebrews tells us that there are ministering spirits sent out into the world to care for those who are to inherit salvation. Um, we get this idea in the Bible that there are, in fact, divine beings, messengers from God who are directing affairs on the earth. And I think it's important for you and I to realize that these aren't just words that Jesus is giving to the church while we are here on the earth. Um, Revelation spends a lot of its time painting geographical position um, ways of communicating truth. And by that, I mean in the book of Revelation, when you read the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, um, that is almost always a reference to those who do not know Christ and are not a part of his kingdom. When you read the phrase, those who dwell in heaven, the idea is not that the Revelation is a futuristic book and that people have died and quote unquote gone to heaven when they died um, and therefore it's, it's happening in the future. That's not what the idea means. What it means is where is our citizenship? Where are we? And, and even a book like Ephesians chapter 2 talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see, our geography, if you will, our place is in the heavens. It's we, we are seated next to Jesus in the heavenly places, not in heaven, like heaven is some disembodied state of a place I'm going to go when I die. That's not what he means. He heavenly places being God's space, and earthly places being our space. And what Jesus has done, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer in churches, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heavenly reality, heavenly space, heavenly places, bring that reality where you are seated on a throne, bring that reality to bear on the earth. And every time God does that, fantastic things happen. Earth is 
altered because of what's happening in the heavens. And John's way or Jesus's way of reminding the churches that our place is in the heavens is by addressing the churches through an angel. Angels, we know, reside in the heavenly places. And he wants to remind these churches that he is there on his throne. And the way we reached out and, and take a hold of him is the fact that he is holding these seven angels in his right hand. The same hand he reaches down and encourages John with the words, fear not. Your place is with me. Your space is in the heavens. And I want you to know it. And even through the Old Testament, in places that, honestly, I grew up without a worldview that would even know what to do with this. But in Daniel chapter 10, I'll just read a few of the verses. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 4, here's what it says. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist... His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like a gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Wow, this sounds exactly like John in Revelation 1. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Well, that also sounds like I fell on my face as though dead. Um, or I fell at his feet as though dead, as the way John puts it in Revelation. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, I won't take a lot of time to go into details here, but this is very interesting that Daniel is praying for the Lord to send someone to help him. And a messenger of some kind clothed in linen with similarities strikingly um, or with, with characteristics strikingly similar to the one we're given of the Son of Man in Revelation 1. But this one tells Daniel that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. There was a battle going on in the heavenly places, trying to get in the way of earthly correspondence between the heavens and the earth. This is real. We do not hold to a worldview, even though we live in 21st century America, of a closed system. 
We do not believe in a materialistic worldview where only the things that you and I can see, taste, hear, smell, and touch are the real things. We are connected to the heavens, and the heavens are connected to us. And thank God they are. Because the kinds of things that Revelation is in fact going to address will strip away what human beings can do or would even want to do in a world where all that you could see, hear, taste, smell, and touch was all there was. That is not the case. We are dealing with divine beings who have effects over things that happen on the earth. Of course we do. We believe in Jesus, God himself, come in the flesh to set the captives free and to create a brand new world. This is the hope of the book of Revelation. And for Jesus himself to hold seven stars, seven angelic figures, seven divine messengers in his hand, and then to address those messengers and those caretakers of these churches, but also to address the churches themselves, is nothing more than what we have seen repeatedly throughout this podcast already. These representative heads who take ownership over some of the things that are going on below. This is the connector all through the book of Revelation. You'll notice when the Lord gets ready to speak or to act, his angels are the ones who do it. This is the kind of worship that the Lord receives in Revelation chapter 4. It is all these angelic creatures and all of these fantastic, um, beautiful divine beings that serve the Lord's beck and call. These are the ones who play a part in what the Lord wants to do in and through us. And so the encouragement that I would offer to you today as a pastor of a church to you as Christians in your own contexts is that we need to be ready to face fear head on. We have one who is the king of our kingdom who by faith trusted in his father even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the fact that the leader and the founder of our kingdom suffered and died at the hands of his enemies, but who willingly chose to suffer and die for his enemies, means that if we actually want to testify to him and witness to him and shine our light on him, we will need to prepare ourselves to embody the exact same stance toward those we perceive to be our enemies. This again heads right back to the idea of the sharp two-edged sword. And the stance that we take, rooted in the fears that are ours, what it in fact will look like to testify to the truth of who Jesus is, and be willing to lose everything we think brings us life in order to do so. The book of Revelation is not supposed to be terrifying weird stuff. It is not supposed to be things to dread in the future. The only thing on this earth that is worth fearing is death, and Jesus has already conquered it, which means quite literally this. There is nothing on this planet that is worth fearing any longer. Not fearing being exposed. Not fearing your life um, not going the way that you want. Not fearing disease. Not fearing old age. 
not fearing somebody not liking you, not fearing where your life, where your next paycheck's going to come from. These are the kinds of things that Jesus wants to address in the hearts of his followers because if he has conquered death and death is the, tr- is the key to all fear, then what he has done by holding the keys of death and Hades is he has unlocked the fact that fear no longer has any opportunity to grip our hearts. And yet we are free creatures and we can choose to continually be afraid if we want. But the chance for freedom is ours. The chance to walk into the kingdom of God with Jesus is ours, but we will have to address the fears that have already found themselves buried deep within our souls, deep within our hearts. And he wants to set you free from those things. This is what he's come to do. He wants to do it with you and he wants to do it with me. And nobody knows how to do that better than Jesus himself, the living one who died and who came to life. That's all the time we have for this week's episode. Really looking forward to jumping in beginning next week as the Son of Man himself now turns to really address the churches. And his message for us is going to be both powerful as well as encouraging. And I'm asking that as you are listening through this podcast before you even get to next week's episode that you simply take some time and bring your heart before Jesus and ask him what are some of the fears that he might want to address with you. Because his words to his people in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are incredibly liberating if we are not too afraid to look deep inside our hearts to see what's really there. He'll set us free from anything we're willing to admit is there, but he can't do a thing for us in places that we're unwilling to go. So I just ask you to prepare your own hearts for what we're going to dive into in the weeks and months to come. And I do ask that you just continue to um, pursue him and share this podcast with anybody you think might find value in it. Until next time, have a great week.